Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. I am DM Mike, and joining me is DM Jim. Howdy. DM Corbett. I am happy to hear from you. <laughs> and DM Liz. Hello, hello. We are covering the 1975 classic On Guard, a swashbuckling RPG, sort of, put out by Games Designers Workshop. Written by Frank Chadwick, a guy who would later go on to do some Traveler stuff and Space 1899. But how are we doing today? Eh? Eh? <laughs> Couldn't be better. <laughs> it is an overcast evening. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, normally we leave emails for the half shows, and this isn't strictly speaking an email. It's from the Patreon site by one of our patrons giving an opinion on the release of the Alma Mater episode Uh that Liz and I thought was worth recording. (laughs) Here, here it comes. What a fabulous, insightful, yet in touch with Modern Times review you gave that game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is from Bill Barsh, and he wrote on the Patreon board, well... There it is. I was 17 at Gen Con 1982 and took it as a challenge to find it. I bought mine there on the first day, Thursday, threw it in the garbage on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Aero Lotus art, wasn't it? You can tell us, Bill. Well, somebody might have thrown up on it. You never know. You never know. (laughs) Spilled a Coke. Spilled a Coke. Yeah, that was it. So there you have it. Very brief, but to the point. (laughs) I thought it was going to be critical. That smelled like pure vindication. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a how very dare you. Yeah, it is. We read that and it's like, yep, yep. Got to mention that on the show. I think think that he got in, what, three or four sentences, what we took an hour to come to. Yeah, we're not there. (laughs) Succinct and to the point. Good old Bill. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Bill. And so, then... Uh, Oh, speaking of Patreons, don't we have Patreons to... to Yes, Yes, we do. Just about to say that. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, since we are on the Patreon subject, Mm -hmm. we have two new patrons since the last shout-out I've done. Two! uh, 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 
Our first one is Zach Hammond. And Zach did give permission for us to give his full name and the shout out. And our second one is Herb Inn. And thank you for joining us, Zach and Herb. We appreciate you both immensely. We yes. really do, because without your your support and help, one of us has to pay the domain name fee every year. <laughs> <laughs> and the feed and the, yeah. And, That's and always the a good conversation, too. Which one of us is the most broke this year? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Remember, without your eternal vigilance, it can happen here. And on that note... Let's take a pod break, and we return to Mike and the Mechanics. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Mad balls, mad balls, gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball, they're gross, funny, yucky, sick. There's eight, so you can take your pick. We throw, catch, it's uh-oh fun. There's so much gross in every one. Freaky fun is what they're for. There's so much ugly, so much more. Gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. Mad ball. Freaky fun for everyone, sold separately from Amtoy. Mad ball. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Mike and the Mechanics. All right. This game, character generation, isn't that hard uh the first thing i'll say is uh you roll surprise surprise 3d6 on attributes strength expertise constitution and endurance is a role that you multiply you do your role then you multiply it by your strength and that's your endurance number which is basically your hit points There's a fifth attribute if you use the military campaign section in the back called military aptitude, but that's not necessary for the quote-unquote main game, and it would be only a d6 roll at any event. You roll on birth tables to get your, your family's social level, your siblings' rank, your father's standing. All this works into your initial social level, which is very important in this game, but we'll talk about it as we go along. Dueling, sword fights, and your social level, increasing or decreasing your social level, is really the the meat of this game. And I'll just say, I both love and hate that part. (laughs) But we'll discuss it. For 1975, just keep in mind, this game was coming out pretty much at the same time as the first generation of RPGs. Namely, anything that came out after 1974's original D&D. We're talking Tunnels and Trolls, Starships and Spacemen, and On Guard. So, we'll just uh, hit initial reactions, 
Jim. Um, my initial reaction was surprise. This is very, I'm very embarrassed to disclose this, but I only knew On Guard from mentions and reviews in Old Dragon magazines prior to us deciding to do an episode. Because it was from Game Designers Workshop, I've spent over three decades thinking it was hand-to-hand combat rules for Traveler, like Snapshot. I swear to God, that's that's what I was walking around until whoever picked this one picked this one. I found a cheap copy on uh, eBay, got it home, and went, oh, it's a little brown book. And then I opened up and read it, and that was my second surprise. But I'll save that surprise for later. Corbett? Well, when it came out, I was four, so I got the Fisher-Price copy and dove right into it. <laughs> <laughs> Or, much like Jim, I just bought it off of eBay because I'd heard about it in the past. One of those rumored, ill-fated, well, not ill-fated, just old-timey game for old-timers in old-timey ways. People who use hand cranks on their uh, the role-playing games and stuff. <laughs> well, but, it didn't uh, really have a lot of support from GDW, so... Yeah, there's some nowhere company, right? Yeah, GDW, Games Diners Workshop, never really did anything. Yeah. <laughs> back, back from the days when sharing a game with your friends long distance meant mimeographing it, taping it to Nate track and faxing it to him. <laughs> Teletyping it. What if two swallows carry it? <laughs> no. well, two swallows may be. <laughs> Especially if they're dueling. Uh, first opening up, first initial thought, I, I agree with Jim that it, it's like Traveler if you were going to add in some kind of laser sword fighting. I don't know how you would do that in a space show, but something like that would be very cool. Okay. Liz? Uh, first impression, uh, I went in to reading the rules for this episode, thinking that I was going to be bored out of my mind. But I was pleasantly surprised to find things in the game system that were of interest to me. Overall, I I find combat was eh, but the part two where they go into the um, character and his environment, I found a lot more meat in that section that that I found of interest. Okay. My reaction. After finishing reading this, I could see where a lot of these rules were later developed into Traveler in 1977. There you go. That It's really proto-Traveler in some ways, especially the military campaigning section in the back reminded me a lot of Book 4 Mercenary, only not as sci-fi'd up, of course, since On Guard is supposed to be based in 17th century Paris and France in general, reenacting the Three Musketeers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I would say pleas- to say Mark Miller read this game. Yeah, actually, as a historian, would you say that the 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 ranking system and everything? Because I thought it was pretty well detailed, but I didn't know if any um, of that was even remotely. For the most real. part, they use some titles in there, like Earl, that did not exist in France. Period, much less 17th century France. But that's being a bit pedantic. Most of it is pretty okay, with the caveat this isn't really my field, so. 17th century but uh but yeah i mean it's i was pleasantly surprised like liz the social level and how to get there's no levels in this game like D. there's no xp this is you work your social level to gain higher rank influence and money basically and frequently you have to spend money to get the other two that's how you gain and you know for the maintaining the genre i think it did it really well at least the intent some of the mechanics i could argue with but the intent i can't argue if you were a literature professor instead of a history professor i would have the same question of how much of what's in this game setting wise relies on the three musketeers are any of us up on our alexandre Dumas, or have we just seen the movies which would be fine if that was the way it 
it flipped out because how many RPGs are just based on movies anyway? Yeah, that's true. Okay, well then let's go right into our top fives. The Save for Half Top Five in five, four, three, two. start with Jim. My number five dovetails nicely off of yours because I saw the same thing where you could see how a lot of this conception shook out later in Traveler, but I saw the uh, the way the actual combat dueling system works where you pick your moves in advance and record them as very anticipatory of games like Ace of Aces, which was World War One dogfighting, but then they did the, I think they were called Lost World books, where they mm-hmm. tried to turn it into D&D, and you you had each had your book, and you had to pick the move out, trying to anticipate what the other guy did. But once you picked the move out and yelled out, go to page, blah, blah, it's too late, you're committed. Yeah, and something I probably should have reiterated, there's no game master in this game. Everybody is playing characters. So as part of that, a lot of mechanics are in here to with a lot of tables, like Jim, you were just saying about having to predict your your moves ahead of time from a from a set number. Like you know, you remember Ace Aces where you had the little boxes for your aerial moves. It's yeah. the same kind of back and forth where you're trying to anticipate what your opponent's going to do and lean into it. The combat system with its segments and everything actually made me think a lot of, or actually call them turns, but they work as segments as champions with the speed charts. Hmm, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, with the various segments. When you, you roll your initiative and whatnot. But okay, Corbett, you're five. Okay, I know everybody's going to talk about the social level, but I have a I have a question that I kind of want to ask myself and anybody who is listening. In the game, you have a social level that essentially uh, establishes where you're at. Kind of a simple tiered or ladder system. You know, you're trying to achieve a certain social standing, which is kind of cool and, and has some drawbacks. But there's something I was wondering, because one of the uh, references he had early in the book was a Scarlet Pimpernel. And Scarlet Pimpernel is essentially a superhero in the Flashing Swords days who wore a mask. So would the Scarlet Pimpernel have a high social standing or a low social standing? And how would that affect your character? This is more of a hypothetical that I kind of wrapped right my head around for no reason. But oh, the well, Bruce another, Wayne dilemma is is Batman yeah. a millionaire or is it just Bruce Wayne? Well, right. And another of the inspiration was the Harry Flashman novels. Oh, right, right. And he's not even until the 1840s, so it may have been an inspiration. But yeah, I agree. I think in that kind of circumstance, social level wouldn't apply to the Scarlet Pimpernel at all. Yeah. Well, but wouldn't he have some kind of standing? You, you'd have to have a secret identity. And the secret identity might have a very different social standing than the Scarlet Pimpernel identity. And one of the things that you have to do in the game to maintain social standing is have a mistress or visit a body house. And how does the Scarlet Pimpernel do that? And does he keep his mask on the whole time? Oh. (laughs) At the really naughty body house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just more that was more of a question kind of as a the social thing you guys can go into the details on it but i just i just had that sudden thought when i was thinking of the scarlet pimpernel and the flashman i didn't even consider that but yes you have characters that have alternate personas i suspect this is an example where the attempt to emulate the three musketeers takes precedence over anything else hmm. right if you if you did a, a 17 40 era supplement for victorious then you would have to address that but 
in Three Musketeers. <laughs> well, well, no, I'm being serious. But in Three right. Musketeers, nobody cares. I'm just, but it was an interesting conundrum when I was kind of fiddling with the social levels thing. Okay, Liz. Okay, number five. Well, since we were talking about the dueling rules, my number five. I just found them weird. And I mean, I've played champions myself, and I do kind of get where the whole segments, if you have a speed of blah, you go on segment two, four, six, eight, and 10 or whatever. But as far as it goes in on guard, it just seems really awkward to me. And I'm not sure if it was just the way that they were written out in this rule book, and these rules actually do make sense if you see them in play, or if they genuinely are awkward. I can't decide, but it was really hard for me to wrap my brain around them as I was reading through that part. Yeah, especially with the difference in expertise. One fighter has more than three or four points of expertise higher than the other. They only have to write down six moves, six moves in instead of and not 12. 12. Right. And, and then you start having overlapping segments because mm-hmm. they get to do six and then after they've done their six, then they have to do a full 12 after that. But the other guy is in the middle of his first 12. So now you've got the overlapping plans. And it's like, I don't even yeah, know how that works. Yeah, and since they display works. them at the same time, does that mean well, the guy who only had to predict six now can write out his next six after looking at his opponent's 12? To take it down a little simpler, it was done... I think better in White Wolf Street Fighter like 20 years later, but they did it with cards. Um, imagine if you had a rock, paper, scissors game with like you had each of the three cards and you had to lay out five and your opponent had to lay out five and then you flip them over simultaneously to change things up. And then as you play along, you can then rechange your cards thinking their strategy is going to change. That's a good analogy because I'm with Liz. If, if you're talking rock, paper, scissors, this tiered combat system was rock, paper, scissors, lizard, lizard spot. Lizard <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's got like six different things to it, I think, or it's a little more complicated. Yeah, I think it's six, and it depends on the weapon, because there's some things every lunge you do, you have to do a rest on the next one, and, you know. I don't know. For a first attempt, though, I thought that was pretty cool. In comparison to D&D at the same time, I mean, you have a lot more control over the way your attacks are, whereas D&D was going for the broad spectrum, I hit, I miss. Yeah. I'm sure that's what attracted the hardcore war gamers of the era. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like, like you I said, it may make a lot of sense if I actually see it in action, but just trying to make sense of the way it was written out, it was very difficult for me. Here, here. Okay. Uh, my five. Engaging in poltroonery. <laughs> you gotta say it with a French accent, man. Basically, in the military campaign rules, your character has a chance of dying, depending on what happens with certain battles, certain maneuvers, certain whatever, unless you decide to run away. That's engaging in poltroonery, which means your character survives, but takes a big social level hit. (laughs) Otherwise known as the Brave Sir Robin move. (laughs) Yes. This is what you do when you're branded Mm -hmm. and you fight for your name. I love that rule. I thought that was a nifty way of cheating death, which is also very... That's the Flashman influence. Ah, yes. The master of poltroonery. I love that rule. Again, allowed you to opt out without by taking a major social level hit. So that was cool. Do you, do you really like the rule or do you just like saying poltroonery? Yes. <laughs> poltroonery. <laughs> Poltroon. Awesome. All right, Jim, number four. Brock, brock, brock. Super chicken. 
<laughs> um, my number four, my early number picks are going to be the things I liked about the game before I start ripping in a new one. So I, I love how this game is very of its era where it was written in a way that almost demands the use of miniatures. Similar to obviously Chainmail D&D, but also like Boot Hill and a lot of those early RPGs were written in a, I mean, in a way that you you wanted a little whatever that company's name is that made the knights they used in chainmail i'm sure that same company made little musketeers you want Many those pigs. on the table yeah or eastland eastolan never mind i can't remember but yeah. if, if, if they were 35 40 millimeter scale even better for this game Ooh, yeah, those yeah. Britons. yeah and for no desirable reason because the rules don't demand miniature don't require miniatures but they were written with miniatures in mind you know you want your two little fencing guys facing off and uh-huh. their uh rip hoste <laughs> poses okay corbett well off of uh, mike's uh, poltroonery. I love the reckless bravery r- a rule. You can essentially sacrifice uh, a chance to succeed for a better chance for treasure or, or uh, uh, what was it, um, standing later, right? Yeah. Yeah. Increase your social level. Yeah. It's almost like bimbo points or plot points or fate points that would have been later on where you sacrifice something now, but you can get a better reward later. Like you may not have yeah. as good a chance to hit, but if you hit, you're going to get this cool thing. That's pretty neat. That's very, let's make a deal. Do you want what's in my pocket? Or do you want the thing over there? Wheel of fish. (laughs) Do you want that die roll? Or would you like to roll again behind door number three? (laughs) In the box? Nothing! Nothing. (laughs) Stupid! (laughs) Nothing like a Weird Al reference. Yes. You can't beat it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, Uh, reckless bravery. Fun stuff. All right. Liz, four. Oh, well, since we're going on our favorite weird rules, toadying. (laughs) One, I love to say toadying. And it even has its own table. And it is exactly what it sounds like. If you are a good enough sycophant, you can gain status points for it. By toadying to someone with a higher social level. Yep. Yep. Good job, Igor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sam. And if you are a high social level you can allow a lower social level character to toady up to you. And depending on the disparity in your levels, you might actually lose some points by allowing this, but you're doing it with the assumption that the character that is toadying up to you has a skill or some kind of influence of their own that you can take advantage of later. And so you're willing to take that hit now in order to get the favor from them later on. Like Sherlock Holmes and his uh, street rats. Yeah, the bigger street irregulars. Yeah. Yep. Okay. My four. Again, we're talking about some of the rules. I really like the society social rules. I mean, this these rules would be good to use if you wanted to just have a say a D&D city campaign particularly if you were dealing with like cavaliers or knights or people who social standing or social level is important to them although the mistress rules were certainly interesting what i found most interesting about them other than the fact that you can give them names if you wish well gosh <laughs> <laughs> is that they give you a favor once a year now mind out of the gutter nope <laughs> <laughs> a favor is what amounts to a point you can use to influence a die roll in the future, another die roll on something else. So it was really kind of a fate point in 1975. 
which is pretty damn impressive. Thank you, Mistress Number Two. <laughs> you don't have a name, but you have a beauty stat. So, which all I can think of is, you know, those guys who insist on every woman coming around grading them on a one to ten. It's like, this is exactly, you get the feeling they didn't expect many women to play this game. I'm not sure they expected any women to play this game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I could deal without some of the mistress rules, but I like the idea of that because then it gives you an in-game Uh, you know, rationale for doing stuff that is part of the genre, the Three Musketeers. That was cool. All right, three, Jim. Oh, well, the female companionship rules. Where do I start? Mother Mary (laughs) Prom on a stick. I mean, I know the the original IP writer owners got this back and republished their own newer version in the 80s, but I bet they didn't fix the, the female companionship rules. I mean, this game needs one of those disclaimers like they put on the Warner, some of the Warner Brothers cartoons now. This was wrong then. It's still wrong now. I, the, the whole thing, I, you know, there's play style preference and taste, and there's just not cool. All that mistressing around. The, the carousing rules have been redone and reflected in games as recent as DCC Lankmar, which Michael Curtis did a genius job of fitting Fritz Lieber into Dungeon Crawl Classics. And there's a new, there's a different luck mechanic in that version of the game. And you're going to get fleeting luck and you're going to spend it like crazy in combat. How do you get it back? You go carousing. You get drunk in a bar and start a brawl. But nothing is as unsavory as trying to play dangerous liaisons, the role playing game. It's a lot like Alma Mater. I'm sure it's historically accurate, but I don't care. I don't like it. Yeah. To be fair, I think it said at the beginning of regarding your own character, the same sentence. You can give him a name if you want. Yeah, and you can give your mistress a name. I mean, that just... Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. And and, and, when I, and when I try it, sometimes we, we give games like this that are old some slack of, you got to remember it was the 70s, but it just creeps me out worse thinking of a bunch of fat, sweaty guys in, in tie-dye t-shirts leaning over a table rolling dice about their mistresses. That's creepy. You know, I, I'm going to defend this a little bit here, only only because thinking of uh, Aramis from the movie, Richard Chamberlain's character, you know, he comes barreling out of windows and there's the angry husband chasing after him or whatever. And I don't know who her name was or I doubt he did either, but it's, it's, <laughs> it fit his character type. And it's kind of like the Baker Street Irregulars. They, they probably don't really, I mean, I'm sure they have names, but they barrel out of women's windows and oh, wait, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying that like there there are essentially NPCs that, you know, like, oh, I have a superhero and he has a policeman that he has information from on the force. I didn't think to give him a name because he's just a policeman on the force. Can I go talk to my friend, the policeman on the force? Yes, you can. Does he have a name? No, then you can't. <laughs> so I, I, I'm ready to die on this hill. So let me do a compare and contrast. I, if I say I personally wanted to to, to take this uh, combat system and play it and experience it so I can understand it. Like Liz and I were talking, it's way too crunchy. My brain won't wrap around it. But if I wanted to give it a try, my first move would be to move it to Barsoom. Okay. Now we're in the, that was this and then. Now, you know, is, is John Carter Mars politically correct by our standards today? No. But even in 1917, uh, one of those princesses you're rescuing would be the first person to pull a gun or stick a knife in the bad guy if they got a chance to. And it was all, it was the noble parts of chivalry, not all the seamy side of it. For an adventure game, that's more what I want to role play and have fun with. Oh, no, the Countess de Winter. She was a you know, pretty good adversary for the Three Musketeers. Okay, I'm not going to get it. It's fine. Well, no, I, agree, I, I but... see what you're saying. Again, this gets to the genre. Mm-hmm. Does it match the genre? Whether we like the genre or not, does it match the genre? 
And I, I would agree with Corbett that it does match the genre. It's not oh, for sure. my bag particularly. I mean, granted, yeah, it's pretty sad that they're like, yeah, just put a number on them because they straight up number them in the in the rules. I'm just telling you about my <laughs> feelings. It's exactly like yeah. alma mater. If you enjoy the worst George Romero version of a 70s high school movie, if you want to role play that and stick switchblades in your math teacher's neck, that's fine. You go have fun. I, it's just not me. Yeah. Ironically, I think the argument was with Alma Mater is it was trying to be too many different things. I think this, despite, like you said, Corbett, about Scarlet Pimpernel, etc., I think this really zeroes in on the Three Musketeers, and that's really all it's trying to be. I well, fair will enough, say... but you know what gamers are going to do with that? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> what were you saying, Liz? I will say, the one saving grace that I found to the female companionship section is that if the character's mistress is wealthier and of higher social standing than the than the character is, she will pay him in gold <laughs> and gifts rather than vice versa. And so is the character actually the kept man in this instance? And he just doesn't know it. Would that lead into toadying? There you go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> See, now that you explain it to me, I'm completely for being a kept man. I'm in for that. <laughs> it's not easy being green. <laughs> Ladies, just so you know, email me. <laughs> Call me. Okay, uh, three. I think we're at Corbett. What would players do indeed? <laughs> in the back of the book, there's a section on, or towards the back of the book, there's a section on investments, meaning that your player or your character takes their money and invests in, I don't know, trips to the other world or whatever. In general, they explain it as, oh, you might invest in arms manufacture. And if you are aware in the game that the there's a war going on, then arms manufacturer is going to give you a good kickback. Well, <laughs> the thing is, if you start investing in arms and all the group with you agrees to invest in the arms and then you go start that war, <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> I'd just like to put my money in a hedge fund. <laughs> I think you just described how the Republic fell on Star Wars. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Like, what are characters going to do if they read that? Like, huh, what's this game about? Oh, it's all about on ships. You know, I think ships are going to get some good money this time around. So I'm investing in that. I'm going to hedge fund invest in the failure of Cardinal Richelieu. And, you know. <laughs> and suddenly we're playing papers and paychecks. Yeah. Indeed. But we're all rich. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> How many crowns? We can have four mistresses. One a week. <laughs> You can only have one mistress at a time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although the characters can compete for the same mistress, which has rules for it, too. Speaking of duels. Okay. But all right, Liz, three? Number three. All righty. I'm going to segue from female companionship um, and talk about body houses. <laughs> the amusing part of the body house rules, or at least it was amusing to me, is that the richer and the more important you are, the more things cost for you there. Yes. Both the girls and the refreshments cost the same amount of coin equal to the character's social level. So the guy with the social level of, say, five would pay two crowns more for the same girl as the guy with the social level of three would. And that makes sense because you're theoretically paying for a better quality. Uh, but it's the mm, same necessarily. <laughs> I mean, you could get better quality refreshments, perhaps. But if you're looking for body house girl number two, and you would no pay, names. 
Yes, and you would pay five crowns for the pleasure of the evening with her. But your friend, who is only social level three, could only pay three crowns for the same body house girl number two. Maybe it's you're the same girl. Maybe but you're you pay outbidding. More, I suppose the other guy. I I, I just find it funny. You know, it's like we're <laughs> gouging the rich guys for more money because we know they have him. Well, as Probably a true. longtime GM, I gotta say I think this is a great rule because <laughs> all too often player characters will have ten thousand gold in their bags. Don't know how they've got it there, but then they're like. Oh, I'm just going to sleep outside. I'm going to sleep outside. I'm going to drink out of a ditch and I'm going to hunt squirrels because I don't want to spend my money at the inn. They want a whole gold piece for a room and food. Man, how dare they? Yeah. And I've seen players do that. Like, really? Really, guys? You're just going to. Yeah. It's like you are swimming in gold, but you're too chintzy (laughs) to pay up. For a room at the inn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, same, the same people in real life will be like, oh, that RPG book costs fifteen ninety nine. I don't know if I can afford that. You can't get two people through Taco Bell's drive-thru for fifteen ninety nine. <laughs> yep. So I can certainly see where that rule was necessary in playtest. Yeah. But they also go on to say, which I enjoyed, at the end of this visit, any character in the red light district must roll one die to determine if he is set upon by footpads and relieved of his money. It's like, well, obviously the way to avoid this is to make sure you spend all of your money at the body house. Mm-hmm. That way, when you leave, you have nothing to be robbed of. So moral of the story, tip your server. <laughs> <laughs> or they will tip you. And one of the footpads is waitress number three from the body house who you tried to chintz. <laughs> okay. My number three, T O and E Gasm. Say <laughs> hey, what? Was that Table French? of organization and equipment. It's a military term. The back part of the book goes so much into regiments and squadrons and infantry of foot or dragoons or arquebusiers or cavalry. And- so much military terminology and contractions that even I'm going, oh God, don't care. Don't care. Just don't care. Why are you giving this much detail? Ah! Wargaming? So, Wargamers. <laughs> Wargamers. Exactly. Wargamers. I mean, there's a difference between me at 60 and me at 18. You know, at 18, th- this combat system I, was so crunchy, I would have been delighted. I would have played it till I understood it. Ah. Uh... Yeah, but even, I just, no, no, we don't need this much. And why did they call everything SQD in? Why why not just say squadron? Why not, why RGT, regiment? It's only a couple extra letters. It's not like the whole book only had, what, 52 pages? So it's not like they were low on page count. 18 of that was charts. It was was the 70s and, you know, pre-press printing and ink costs more money and... (laughs) Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, two, Jim. Sympathy to the editor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the positive side, like, Mike, if you ran a session of this at North Texas Con and I was there, I would sit down and play just to figure the combat system out. Because there's, even though I didn't fully understand it, having not been through it, I could see the signs of a good combat system. It has one of the first instances by 1975, I'm guessing, of simultaneous combat, where it's perfectly possible for you both to stick the sword through each other's heart and just both drop dead. 
that could happen. And along with just on the argument of what do hit points actually mean in D&D, I'm on the side that prefers the damage abstraction. You know, it's not it's not literally, oh, that was six hit points, you know, your left arm was severed. There's no hit location, surprisingly, for, you know, a fencing game. Yeah. I, mean, I kind of get why this was popular in the 70s, because I started college in the late 70s, and I counted them up this morning. There were three people in my original D&D group that were getting their PE credits at the university in fencing class, and they were all about it. It was like watching Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Stewart in that one Star Trek episode. They had the suit, the mask, the little fencing sword, and they were 100% about it. So, you know, I'm intrigued by the combat system. Yeah, it's also had the most detail of having weapon breakage rules. Right, right, right. Especially for this era. And again, yeah. that fits the genre. Well, a foil and an epi. I mean, a foil you, for sure can break. You parried and blocked, and now you've got the equivalent of a dagger in your hand unless you throw it, and then it's a saber. Yeah, so definitely. But I'm cool. such a rules hacker. I want to go straight where it said in the rules, you know, you don't have to fence with foils. You, there are alternate weapons. I went straight to that in my brain. Like, okay, so what happened? Two-handed sword. It's the game designer in me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what about if I have a halberd? <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting anywhere near me with that little tin thing. <laughs> okay, Corbett, two? Uh, scheduling. I thought scheduling. It's funny. There's another another game from the time. I don't know if this is something that was of the time, but they have a setup for scheduling your month out, which I'm presuming is because of the wargaming aspect, where you know, like, oh, we're up, we're marching for this next, we're we're doing this for the next month. And I, specifically going back to mistresses, I I wanted to make fun of the fact that D'Artagnan, the first thing in the month, court mistress number four, Roxanne, who has a name, and then number two. Ditto. Number three, ditto. (laughs) (laughs) And then number four, visit the body house. (laughs) Roxanne needs a break. Apparently, ditto. (laughs) But I thought it was interesting because, what was it, Alma Mater had scheduling. There was another game that we reviewed recently that had scheduling. Scheduling was a really common thing, it seemed like. Yeah, you've got to plot out what what your character is doing over the course of, you know, a month, a week, whatever. Although I did like what they had to say in that section. You don't have to keep your word to the other players, but you must do what is written on the calendar. (laughs) (laughs) And it has a game impact because that system was very complex about, you know, what rank your dad is, how much you get a month, Mm -hmm. what you inherit, and this is what it costs to do everything you want to do. So you've got a whole budget you've got to keep. And I'll definitely say I much prefer this to all my modders where they expect you to role play out every day. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every day, all your classes. No, Each thank class. you. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me a lot of Superhero 2044. They did the same thing. Oh, yeah. Well, that was for... like patrol scheduling or something, wasn't right. it? Right. And your secret identity stuff. Yeah, because that's what you want to do is role play all the minutiae. Of, of the life you're trying to escape by role playing in the first place. Yeah. I, I just think it's odd that you're still recording all the minutiae. Uh, it's okay. It was just interesting. I found that historically, on a role playing rules perspective, intriguing. So that's it. Yeah. Schedule. Okay. Liz. Okay. Number two. I thought that their the way they treat the concept of level prog- progression was very interesting insofar as it is possible to lose social levels during gameplay. There's certain activities that are required in order to even maintain your current level, let alone increase it. And if you aren't able to sufficiently maintain over the course of a game month, you automatically lose a level the next month and you've got to work to try and get it back. Just the fact that you aren't just automatically 
going forward. You can drop you know, down. Yeah. Yeah. You can go backward and then forward, maintain, go backward, go forward. I, I thought that was really in, an interesting way to treat it. And it it's um. I, it did seem like your social yeah. standing was very volatile, didn't it? Yes. You yeah. tell them. Yeah. There's yes. my buddy, Messi. <laughs> That's right. Or my- like you, you're hard up for that monthly budget I was just talking about. You can take a loan out from another player character or a word that we would no longer use. Yeah. <laughs> a loan officer, we'll say. Yeah. Okay. Well, my number two, I'm going to play off sort of what you're saying, Liz. But again, there's the budget. Not only the budget, but you're expected to spend more depending on your social level. We've kind of hit that already. One of the interesting things I found about it is if you ran out of cash and couldn't afford to repay said loan officer or PC, basically have to run to one of the frontier regiments. And again, what I was talking about 17th century France here, because they pretty much assume that the frontier regiments are all French. And the frontier regiments are considered the lowest on the totem pole of the military. So you take a social level hit by going to that unit, even if you manage to get a commission or whatnot, you're going to have to... It's kind of like you're out of the game for a little while, while you build up the cash to then come back and pay off the people you owe. And then you take your reduced social level and start working it up again, probably by toadying. You stop playing Three Musketeers and start playing Beau Jest. (laughs) (laughs) It's too early to go join the French Foreign Legion. (laughs) Pretty much. This is the equivalent, yeah. I joined Um, the Legion to forget. When I was talking about the T-O-N-E, yeah, they give a whole list of the various regiments and their social level in the French army So at this time. So, yeah, very complicated. And, you know, so if you're going to get a commission, you got to pay for a commission. You got to make sure it's in a proper regiment that is of your social level. Otherwise, you take a level hit. Then you've got to work on getting influence. But I'll discuss that one later. Anyway, Jim, number one. My number one starts with a question. Has anybody besides me played in a D&D campaign in which the campaign went long enough in real time that in game time you started generational playing, like you're playing the the sons and grandsons of your characters? A couple of times. Where where the passage of game time becomes a factor, because I question the logic of On Guard in that you're stuck with a campaign setting that can only last so many years. And then all this work you've done raising your status ends with your head in a basket. (laughs) Well, it depends. 17th century, you know, you're not looking at the revolution until 1789. So you've got like 150 years. Well, yeah, you might be some great earl who's bodying around with mistresses number three through four, but your grandson's not going to have a good time. No, no. While I played descendant characters, they never really, it was never really, okay, let's do a full-fledged campaign of these characters. Usually it petered out after maybe a few months after. Maybe that's just a thing with my group. I mean, my Gamma World campaign went on long enough. Sons of the Gamma World characters got stuck on the Starship Warden and didn't know they, they were on a ship. I will say that in some of the games that we've played with Chase, one of the campaigns that he had us going through, our characters from a former campaign were around as NPCs. We were not playing descendants of those characters, but our old characters were there, and we got to interact with them a little bit. 
I was going to say, I can't be the only person who ran a level zero character up to demigodhood. Oh, yeah, we did that. Oh, sure, <laughs> but they just didn't have any kids. I Which never actually made it past... works, because if the, if the civilization goes to hell after your demigod, you don't care that much. I never made it past ninth or tenth level. Yeah. To be honest, I get bored with the character once it gets to name level. I'm way more interested in playing low-level campaigns. Yeah, well, for real, like, for reals, I guess my complaint is I just this isn't this this setting is not my cup of tea, and I can't pull my brain out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Corbett, number one. Something I thought was kind of endearing or telling, or um, I don't know, it was interesting. The dedication in the in the book is to three people. Andre Dumas, the the writer for um, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, the, the 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 genre. Sir Harry Flashman, which is a fictional character, but mentioned earlier, and Danny Kaye, the the uh, singer, actor, comedian from the fifties and forties. Is that who that was? I had no idea who that was. Unless there's another Danny Kaye that I'm not aware of. <laughs> <laughs> you you sounded like you were explaining who Danny Kaye was to your kids. Sorry. <laughs> well, not all of our listeners are going to know who Danny Kaye is. And I was just like, huh, that's sort of, sort of like throwing Laurel and Hardy in. Granted, totally worthy of a mention, but weird to throw that in a swashbuckling, like Errol Flynn would make more sense or... Uh, Fairbanks. Yeah, Douglas Fairbanks. But Danny Kaye, oh, I guess what was like he was in the court jester which is sort of a medieval setting Heck, i don't think he was ever sutherland a... would make more sense <laughs> from 74 or 75 eh. well that's true yeah i just thought that was cute and interesting and i don't know if that's telling or or not about the, the writer but i suspect uh, there's a story behind that and we would probably have to talk to frank chadwick or Mark Miller to find out. Yeah. Well, or maybe somebody will write in and say, What you never heard of Danny Kay, the famous French foilman or whatever? Like, yeah. I don't know, I didn't. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Okay. Liz? Number one. Okay. Touching back on the whole thing where you're creating the character, it was really weird reading about how it was just uh I guess the best way to explain it is there's just like a weird dichotomy in how they are treating character creation just throughout the game because they have you rolling on all these tables going to all this effort to determine your character's class their birth order in the family what their father's rank was etc etc write all this stuff down you know just get into the nth degree of detail on your background and then they just kind of throw it all away with and if desired you can give the character a name (laughs) it's like why would i do all of this background work only to not name the dude well they certainly had names for the sample character yeah but backgrounds in the book it's just really weird though you know go to all this effort but then eh, you don't have to name him if you don't want to so well, I'm kind of invested now. I want to name him. You know? You're exactly right because it's in that weird transitional stage where everybody's still figuring out role playing what role playing games are supposed to be when there's actually role playing elements in you know Monopoly. You don't name your little you know top hat or racing car, but it's still you, you're still torturing your fellow player when he lands on your hotel. Yeah, I didn't take half an hour to get into the background of my racing car. You know, right, <laughs> I right, just, right. Just grabbed it and went. You know. Maybe that was a play to the war gamers who are like, well, who my character? This figure. This figure's my character. I don't need a name. He's right here. <laughs> That's all I can think of. Okay. My number one. I like how they played influence in the game. Again, it is really reflective of 
court intrigue, and they really push the idea, especially in the military campaign section, of conspiring against enemies you may have in the same army. You know, different officers, different commanders. You're trying to use your influence with the minister of the army in Paris to try to get a command or or that sort of thing. I don't necessarily like the mechanics behind it, but I like the intent in that they're trying to introduce... Again, I keep telling myself this is 1975. They are really trying to work for you to role-play this character. And I can admire that even if I don't admire the the mechanics. So, all right. Well, let's head on into what makes the save and what takes half. What makes the save and what is going to take half? What saves, what halves. And we're going to shake it up a bit and start with Liz. Yeah, well... Okay, what makes the save? For me, uh, getting back to the way leveling works, I think that is one of the most interesting things about this game, in my opinion. I really do like the idea that you can lose levels if you don't put in the effort to maintain your standing. So even if you are happy right where you are, you still have to work hard to stay there. Uh, Not as hard as if you wanted to keep advancing, but you can't just get to a certain point and say, "Eh, I don't care anymore. It's like, no matter what, there is incentive for the character to keep doing things for activity. You don't ever get to a point where you can just kick back and rest on your laurels. What takes half, not to belabor the combat rules, the way they're written. Just throughout the book, there's tables that go with various rules. And these tables are almost always in their own section in the back of the book, instead of being paired with the text that refers to them. And for me, at least, that it's, it's an awkward and confusing setup, and it hindered my understanding of the game as I was reading through it. I think it really would have been better to have the tables with the rules that they're supposed to go to. For instance, the time sequence stuff that Corbett was talking about. You know, at one point they're saying, well, the specific actions recorded in the in the example will be explained later, but this is the manner in which the weekly records must be planned. So why not have the explanation with the example? That would seem to make more sense. So for me, that was one of the things that really got in the way of my enjoying the game as much as I think I could have otherwise. Okay. Corbett? Uh, Makes a save. I liked a lot of the character detail that you can build your character with. It has a lot of cool background. I I know (laughs) Phyllis pointed out that and if you want to name him, whatever. But (laughs) there's a lot of really good stuff that like, I could see pulling over to any game now. And like Mike had mentioned, it is a definite nod to Traveler and a lot of games that came after. But you know what what makes half the character creation is also kind of terrible (laughs) (laughs) because there's literally no like this is how you do it there's like i think there's one paragraph in the statistics and then everything else kind of just rambles off of that and it took me a while to actually put it into my head how that works so i will agree with with liz that the rules in general seem to jump around a bit or they just didn't have that that sort of formula setup of you do this you do this you do this and that's that's really kind of the game of its time where like i don't know how we do it we'll just do it this way and they threw it out there so there you go it wasn't clean and concise like original D. <laughs> <laughs> no i know what you mean it's something you could 
say all the RPGs at the time well, suffered. Or as clean and concise as Holmes, which wouldn't be out for another year or two yeah. years, right? Yeah. Very true. So the formula wasn't there yet. Okay. So that made the save? No, that makes half. Oh, it took half. Was Make, the... Makes the save was characters and save, ah. takes half as characters. As characters. You got to okay. tie that together? Huh? 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 <laughs> okay. I should get a social standing for that. <laughs> you get one extra mistress visit tonight. <laughs> oh, number seven. Perfect. <laughs> okay, Jim. Yours? What makes a save on this game for me is I'm glad I was forced to read it by us choosing to review it. And I mean that. <laughs> no, I mean. I, <laughs> I, I don't feel that way about Alma Mater, trust me. Um, no, because this was, by some arguments, the second role-playing game ever, depending on your definitions. You know, so in gaming history, this is a, an important game. And it's, you know, like in college when they would assign you to read Alexandra Dumas or Victor Hugo. You know, that's nothing I would go pick up and read on my own, but I'm glad they made me. I'm glad I, I, I learned things from it. And then plus, you know, the, the name, On Guard. That's just fun to say in any and all gaming context. On guard. What doesn't make the, the, the save for me is just the uh, a historical setting that's too problematic for me to play or run, you know, in 2021. And some of those other words aren't like poltroonery. That's not so, so much fun to try and say. So wah, wah, wah for me. Wah, wah. Okay. You and Messi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm losing social standing as we speak <laughs> because I'm not feeding her. <laughs> Just a note to our readers, there is a game being published by Osprey called On Guard with an exclamation mark, but it is a skirmish war game. It doesn't even pretend. It may have some role-playing elements in it, like a lot of skirmish war games do nowadays, but it's a different animal, so fair warning. How about, how about you, Mike? Makes a save. <laughs> no GM. In 1975, it was hard to find a group, much less a GM. Mm -hmm. So this was a smart idea to put out a game. Granted, it's got a lot of tables, but it has to because there is no GM. You could play it solitaire, more or less, if you wanted to, with just a little extra finicky bits. But yeah, two, three of your friends get together. You could play this. Everybody's playing. It reminds me of the Starship travel and trade rules from Traveler in book two starships you could play that totally by yourself or just with a friend or two and you're ready to go no gm takes half no gm <laughs> <laughs> it's so many tables i mean it's not the level of tables of alma mater let's be you know honest here there wasn't a hundred plus but a lot of tables and because things are set in tables a lot of the stuff can be very repetitive you need these things work great. I think nowadays some of the social stuff would work good, but only if you had a GM rolling it and then taking that circumstance and then fluffing it out with uh, some flavor text or unusual characters. There, see what I did there, Corbett? Good. Yeah, I see yeah. that. Not just one you. social rank to you. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh -huh. I thought that's what the body house was for—is getting yourself <laughs> off the house. <laughs> And we do mean that. Yeah, that takes half. Anyway, <laughs> that has been On Guard from GDW by Frank Chadwick. Yay. It's uh, not, to my knowledge, available as a PDF anywhere. Although I did find a, a site with PDFs of character sheets and handouts with uh, the tables printed on them, separate from the book, so that you can makes it easier to play. I'll put that site in the show notes. But as for a book, both Corbett and Jim were able to get a 
for what around 30 ish bucks a beat up copy is around that reasonable rates you know yeah. not insane wood grain box D set rates yeah a playable copy so take a look and there's there's a reprint in the 80s wasn't there yeah, the, the authors got the IP back and did like a color upgrade. What I read indicate Wikipedia says that's <laughs> <laughs> the uh, exact same uh, combat system. Very little change. Okay. Be interesting to see if they did any changes to the social systems in it. And does it require a GM? Ooh, that Maybe change, that'll be right? for another show. But until then, say goodnight, everybody. Good night. See ya. Au revoir. <laughs> On Briac. The Save for Half Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.